the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner and CEO of Seattle-based wealth management company, Empirical Wealth Management. Today I have sitting in the studio next to me, Eric Allaire, our Director of Research. Good afternoon, Eric. Hey, Ken. As usual, it is always a pleasure to have you here. And this show is designed to share with you investing and financial planning ideas to help you make smarter financial decisions Empirical is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We work typically with higher net worth individuals to help them manage their investments and to design retirement plans and address other ongoing financial planning decisions that that our clients have to make. If you'd like to call us and see if there is a way we can help you, whether it's your investing and the way you're doing that, or you like help with that, or a financial planning issue or decision that you're making, you can call us throughout the week here at the Empirical Office, 1-800-923-4307. We've got offices in various parts of the country, but uh, if you give us a call at the 800-923-4307, we'll get you connected to someone who can help you. You can also shoot me an email directly, ksmith at empirical. Dot net, ksmith at empirical.net. Empirical is E M P I R I C A L dot net. If you have an investment uh, theory question, Eric is our director of research. And Eric, do you want to give out your email? Maybe Absolutely. You throughout, uh, question throughout the, the week? Sure, sure. Uh, my email is E L E H R at empirical.net. Love to hear from you. Any uh, investment type question, whether you. Uh, you want to know if your your strategy is sound? You uh, you're curious about a particular investment product or topic? Love to hear from you. If you would like to, um, I would encourage you to visit our website. Eric does a lot of posting on our blog. The radio shows are all archived on the website as well, and that is empirical.net. Eric, what's the last couple of topics that you've uh, posted up there? Uh, we just did a post the other day about private equity, uh, buyouts, and how all that works. Uh, I know that's a topic of interest for some people. I think we recently had a post about uh, 401ks versus pensions. Um, you know, some, I think we did some posts about master limited partnerships recently. So, yeah, we have, we have all kinds of various and sundry topics we like to cover. Okay. If you, if any of our discussion today, we're just going to go through various investment concepts and articles. Uh, 
you have any ideas you want to chime in, you can do that by calling into the show live. We are recording here or broadcasting live from our office in Seattle. And uh, it's about 2 o'clock, 2.05 Seattle time and uh, Thursday the 27th. And you can do that. You can reach us one 472 5790 And uh, just let the screener know your name and what, what you want to talk about. You can also shoot us an email throughout the program, contact at empiradio.com. Well, Eric, I thought we could go through a quick overview of what's going on in the market and all the different classes we track every single week and then uh, dive into some of the articles that you had uh, put together out of the Wall Street Journal and other places uh, about investing. And you and I would just chime in about our insights and how it may or may not help you make better decisions on on what you're doing with your investments. That sounds good to me. So... uh, do you want me to run through some of these, or do you, sure. do you want to tackle The uh, Dow Jones closed up 74.3 today at 16,272, and uh, that puts us uh, for the week up about eight-tenths of a percent. Year-to-date now, we are down about 1.83 on the Dow. The S&P 500, however, uh, up a half percent today, almost eight-tenths for the week. And year-to-date, it is positive. and I believe we may have crossed a uh, a high point. We did. Today is a new new all-time high in the S&P. S&P closes at a new record. The S&P clinched an all-time high Thursday for the first time. In six weeks, the stocks rallied on the heels of the Federal Reserve Chief's testimony to Congress. The S&P gained 9.13 points, or half a percent, closing at 18.54, ending near the session's high and firmly above the former closing of 1848, notched on January 15th. Thursday was the fourth day in a row that the S&P made a run at a record close, but the index failed to hold its gains in the previous three. After hitting its January 15 record, the S&P abruptly fell 5.8% over jitters about the emerging market growth, which we all have talked about repeatedly, and I have some ideas on today. But stocks have bounced back Despite a string of disappointing U.S. economic data, which many economists have chalked up to the poor weather, this has been a by-the-dips market, said Terry Sanven, chief equity strategist at U.S. Bank Wealth Management. The market rally fairly quickly back, and in general, the equity market appears to be on a mission to go higher. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Um, Traders said much of Thursday's action was concentrated in single stocks with little new information hitting the market, Um, blah, 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 and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Going down the list here, Eric, large, if we look at year-to-date, I won't go through everything today, but uh, year-to-date, large growth uh, up 1.91, large value down about seven-tenths of a percent. Um. Small growth up 4.2, value up, small value up only 0.35. Microcap is up 4.78, so the small stocks of the market doing doing much better so far year to date. And for the last 12 months, uh, microcap is up 40, almost 43%. Uh, phenomenal return in microcap. The S&P is up about 22, to put that in perspective. So more than double the big cap stocks over the last year. International stocks um, are now positive year-to-date. International blend 
up 0.29, and for the last 12 months, up almost 19%, so not too shabby. Emerging markets, uh, today up 1.88%, a nice bounce for today, and for the week up about one3 That leaves us down year-to-date, however, 4%, 4.18% on emerging markets, and for the last 12 months down 5.65%, an area that we've been talking to. Now, the frontier markets, the smaller uh, countries that are emerging, but yes, less developed even. I notice that's popped up on our sheet here, Eric, and it's interesting. It's an asset class we are tracking and have included in some of our more aggressive portfolios. Up 20% over the last year and up 3.17% year to date. So there are areas in the emerging markets that are doing pretty well. The REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, up 4.53% year to date. So they're also doing pretty well, but over the last 12 months, they're only up 4%. And we've got the World Stock Index, uh, VT, up 0.27 for year to date, up about uh, 0.37 today. Gold, Eric, is, um, wow, year to date, up almost 11%. But uh, that leaves us for the last 12 months down about 15.54% on gold. Silver, uh, down 25% over the last year, but up 9.7 for the year. Platinum down 9.75, and crude oil down 4.11 for the last 12 months. Uh, crude oil is about negative 0.86 for the last for year to date. So that's what's been going on, and where we're at so far this year. And just, uh, I know we, we beat the diversification drum all the time, but I think um, some of the, even the just the U.S. returns really highlight the importance of that. As you pointed out, year-to-date Dow Jones, which is some of your biggest uh, U.S. stocks, are down almost 2%. And U.S. microcap, which would be the, the smallest decile, the smallest 10% of U.S. stocks, is up almost 5%. And these are all in the same country, all affected by the same... Uh, I guess economy and it's a huge difference it's also important as you're tracking uh, and I'm not going through every subcategory that we track for the sake of saving some time here and getting getting you the general picture but it's also important to understand what's going on this way so that you have an idea whether or not your portfolio is doing what it should be doing Um, a manager may be bragging that he beat the S&P for the year but if you knew he was buying smaller companies, for example, and microcaps up 40, almost 43% for the last year, what if he was only up 30 and he was buying all microcap stocks? Well, you really need to understand that, and you need to understand why a globally diversified portfolio, if we look at the World Stock Index, owns a little bit of almost everything in it. Last year is up 18% at a, at a time period in history where the S&P 500 for that last 12 months is up 22%. Well, would you abandon that strategy of owning all of these? No, you wouldn't. Because we know in any one year we, we expect that to happen. And we also realize the likelihood of us accurately predicting and moving in and out of each investment asset class at just the right time is virtually impossible. So you have to going over these helps you if you understand how you've designed your portfolio. And how to benchmark it. Yeah, and uh, I, I think another important consideration, something we, that we, uh, we look at, is how volatile each 
particular asset classes. There are certain assets like micro cap stocks, like small value stocks that do have a, a long, long run expected return that's going to be higher than, say, the S&P 500 or a, a broad world index. But just by the nature of the riskiness of these companies, they're going to also change and fluctuate in price a lot more. And uh, that's something you need to be aware of with your investment portfolio. You don't know when, say, you're going to need to withdraw money from your portfolio. You don't know what your, your exact cash flow needs are going to be for the rest of your life. So it is important to consider um, not only the long-term return potential of, of any asset or a portfolio, but the, the, the long-term risk as well. Good point and well said, Eric. On the bond side of things, the... Um Five-year Treasury this week yielding 1.49%, down over last week, which was uh, 1.54. 10-year Treasury yielding 2.65%. We look at five-year muni uh, municipals, 1.09 this week. That's also down from last week. 10-year municipal bonds, Uh, 2.48. If you're in a 28% tax bracket, that puts the tax equivalent yield on the 10-year muni at 3.44%. If we compare that to a 10-year AAA corporate right now, the yield on those on the average is 3.14%. Still a pretty tough environment on the fixed income side of things, Um, but I would continue to take our advice on that and uh, stay disciplined and not allow yourself to get too focused on chasing yield at any or all costs. Eric, I think we need to take a quick break. Let's do that, and then we'll come back and dive right into our topics for the rest of the show. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor, or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Did you ever stop to think that financial health can be a lot like physical health? The financial physician, Luce Katigna, has helped people on the radio for nearly 15 years. And now he's part of the Voice America Business Channel. By using medical analogies to discuss financial solutions, Lou actually makes the process easier to understand and will help you chart your own financial fitness. Tune in to The Financial Physician, live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, and on demand anytime on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. Alongside Ken Smith, I'm Eric Lear. And Ken, right before the break, we were uh, just covering recent um, market performance. Um, I think you had some articles you wanted to go yeah, over. Yeah, you passed me one, um, and I thought we'd just all scam, skim through these, and we'll open it up to conversation. Um, this is out of the Wall Street Journal, I think you passed, by Brett Ahrens, and it is Go Abroad, Young Investor. Why U.S. investors need exposure to global stocks and the best way to get it. And what I like to do is just read through the article and get the general concept out and then give our view based on all the empirical data that we've looked at as to does it make sense or are there some areas that the author has missed or we disagree with. I'll tell you one thing I watch, been putting on CNBC for the uh, for the exercise in the morning, Eric, and I, I am so... Uh, I find it very funny and frustrating it, watching it because it's it's so useless in terms of actually doing anything to make better investment decisions. I mean, it's fun, I guess, to find out about Twitter and other companies and what's what they're going on. And I do find that very interesting. I love reading about companies and understanding, you know, how businesses are working and how there's companies out there, you know. Um, Facebook buying WhatsApp and all all, well, all these things that are going on and, and how much money they're making. But in terms of distilling these down into um, ideas that, that myself as an investor or you could make um, better decisions, there's very little content on the program that helps to do that. Um, and, you know, when... The one guy that, I forgot his name, uh, he gets there and he's always got like a chalkboard. I'll, I'll get it tomorrow. And um, he he's down on the market and he, there's always like a lot of activity going on and he's always stressed out. And he'll go through a five-minute thing and at the end of it, it it's ridiculous. There's no, nothing of value to help you make any decision. Ridiculous. So anyway... Um, Let's see what what your friend Brett here has to say. If you think U.S. stocks are safer than those in foreign countries, you may want to reconsider. Research shows that the safest investment portfolio, one with the highest potential return and the lowest risk, is likely to be heavier on international stocks and lighter on U.S. stocks. I think that's relevant this year because of the fact over the last 12 months at least, Eric, that the U.S. stocks as measured by the S&P have done better than both emerging and developed international country um, indexes have. So I can see where people could be tempted at this point to say, hey, maybe I should be shifting out of those or avoiding those areas to be in the hotter sector. Um, Many international stock markets, especially emerging markets such as Russia and Brazil, have been in turmoil lately. And yes, over the past couple of years, the U.S. stock market has been a great place to be. But short-term performance is a poor basis for long-term investment. The long-term story suggests something quite different. Periodic rebalancing. I have lately been on a quest for the perfect all-weather investment portfolio, one that needs no more than periodic rebalancing. I accepted that in addition to assets such as bonds 
and inflation-protected securities, a big part of that portfolio should be invested in stocks. But then I ask myself, which stocks and which markets? I found myself reading research conducted separately by two investment managers. Uh, Weller Shop and Partners is one of them, and uh, the other is a company called um, Cambria Investment. Both uh, of the guys running these research looked at the performance of more than 30 different stock markets around the world over long periods. And among their findings, first, no particular stock market provided the best return in all periods. On the contrary, markets of different countries and different regions tended to fare better at different times. So, for example, Japan did better in the 80s, the U.S. did in the 90s, and emerging markets after 2000. And that's true in spite of recent struggle with emerging markets um, from 2000 and now they've done very well. Second, performance in the past has depended to a substantial degree on starting valuations, something we were talking about in the last few programs that a big thing to consider is where you are buying in to a particular diversified asset class. You generally did best by investing in the stock markets that were cheapest in relation to corporate fundamentals such as earnings and net assets. And you generally did worse by investing in those markets which were expensive on those measures. And it seems so simple and so intuitive that when if earnings drive the returns over the long run, um, when those earnings are being priced very cheaply, the market that you're investing in has the tendency or the propensity to do much better than when you're paying a huge premium for that same dollar of earnings. And the forward ability to see the price appreciation you're hoping for um, when you're buying expensive assets. Um, So a fundamental principle of investing that often gets overlooked, I think, during particularly times of, uh, what's the term that... uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman used to use, rational exuberance, um, Greenspan used to say. Okay, and, and which markets are cheap and which are expensive has varied from time over time, and the performance gaps have been substantial. Over five years or so, those who invested in stock markets where they were very expensive were lucky to break even after counting inflation. But those invested in markets when they were cheap often racked up double-digit returns for many years. This has enormous implications for investors. Far from being safe, by sticking to their home market, they would do better to focus on the least expensive markets and avoid the most expensive. Taken to extremes, this would mean that today one would invest large amounts in stock markets such as those of Russia, Turkey, Austria, Greece, and Indonesia, as they are inexpensive and very little here in the U.S., which is comparatively expensive on many measures. It would be a bold investor who took such a gamble. Brent wouldn't. But there are other, less alarming ways of taking advantage of this research. you have a comment, Aaron? I mean, I think that's something when we talked about emerging markets uh, a couple weeks ago on the show. And it's something that we we pointed out, that using fundamental valuations, uh, emerging markets look cheap. Um, And we've, we've written about using valuations as a metric in the past. Um, We've had newsletters about it. We've talked about it on the show. And I I think we we should reiterate this. this None of this is 
saying, well, look at a particular P.E. ratio of a, a stock or a country. This means it's going to do well in the next three months. That's not how this works. Uh, our, our investment strategies, and then the empirical data has sort of shown this out over time, these are long-term measures. If a particular market, a particular segment of the market looks cheap, that means you can expect it to perform well over the next maybe 10, 15 years. Um, but, you know, th- does that mean if something is cheap, something is expensive, you should move in, move out of it? Um, our friend Brett here has a, a balanced approach, which I think is pretty good. You want to? Sure. One can benefit by simply managing a balanced global portfolio and then adjusting it roughly annually, selling a little of whatever is done best and buying a little of what it has done worst to maintain roughly equal allocations. In the past, this strategy would have smoothed returns over time. For example, U.S. investors have benefited from the stronger performance of European and Asian markets in the 70s and 80s and of emerging markets after 2000. In the past, uh, a portfolio invested equally in the MSCI U.S. European and Pacific indexes and rebalanced once a year would have saved U.S. investors from the calamitous slump on Wall Street from 1969 through 1982, balancing between the U.S. developed markets and emerging markets would have helped them after 2000. On both occasions, those who stuck solely to U.S. stocks ended up losing purchasing power over many years. Alas, investing in this way is a little harder than you might expect. Most global stock funds are heavily weighted towards stocks and markets with the highest values. Today, a typical global stock fund has about half its money in the United States and less than 10% in emerging markets. Such funds invest more in a few giant stocks such as Apple, Google, and Microsoft than they do in most countries. And they won't automatically rebalance in the way one would like. On the contrary, as stock market, as a stock or market X keeps rising, it just becomes a bigger and bigger share of the index. What are the alternatives? Now, I have multiple comments as we come back to this, Eric, but I'll finish out the last few ideas that he has. Maybe then we'll take a break and then we'll come back and give our complete thought process on how to handle this. Um, so what are the alternatives? He says one, one could randomly pick 50 stocks from around the world and invest in them equally, or you could use exchange-traded funds to invest in five or ten national markets, uh, one hopes, Uh, with low correlations from Japan to the Middle East, Latin America to Europe, with online stock trades at just a whopping $8 a pop, Eric. These could be reasonably low-cost options. Uh, Mr. Clement says, for those who want to keep things simple, his firm recommends investing equal amounts in low-cost funds tracking five major indexes, the S&P, London's FTSE, Europe's Eurostock 50, the Japan Nikkei, 225 in the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. This portfolio then rebalanced periodically. Would have beat a traditional portfolio by a significant margin over time, he says. Um, This strategy would have produced investment gains of about 70% compared with less than 50 for the U.S. market from 1999 through the end of 2013. I prefer the know-nothing approach to investing, says Mr. Clement. 
If I don't know anything about the future, I put the same amount in each market. Well, I have a lot of ideas about um, the points made in maybe the way that you would get to those. Uh, I don't think... Um, I, I think there are a lot of different ways of doing it. Randomly buying 50 stocks, I just like to say right now, would be the very last thing I would do on that list when you can own one fund that's extremely inexpensive and have well more than 50 stocks from a particular segment of the market. So when we come back from the break, Eric, maybe we could start with just some basics around how these funds would work and how you would put them together and the idea around why you would weight them differently than just an equal weighting, which is also suggested. But uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be back shortly for uh, the next half of Empirical Investing Radio. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Are you a decision maker in your organization, a mid-level manager, or a team member? Stepping Stones to Everyday Success with host Kimberly Stewart is a program designed to provide you with tidbits and tools you need to achieve results no matter where you are in your organizational structure. Interaction is key, and you'll have opportunities to share your ideas, comments, and questions. Listen to Stepping Stones to Everyday Success, live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Eric Lear. He's Ken Smith. We are broadcasting live from the Empirical Towers in downtown Seattle. And uh, before we went to the break, Ken, you were reading this article from the Wall Street Journal about an all-weather portfolio. And uh, I had some, some comments on the suggested methods that, that uh, these particular people quoted in the article had about getting a global portfolio. So first off, um, I want to say that the, the idea broached in the article is, is a good one. It's, it's definitely important, we believe, and the, the data shows or agrees with this, that you don't want to invest too much in your home country 
whether that be the U.S. or somewhere else. It's, uh, it's helpful for performance, for mitigating risk, to diversify all over the world, including developed markets, emerging markets. Um, however, the methods suggested here uh, seem a little silly to me. So uh, one of the, the methods was randomly picking 50 stocks from around the world and investing in them equally. I, I think that method may have been a little bit tongue-in-cheek but uh i don't know it's in, it doesn't say it doesn't allude to that so um ah, i mean it doesn't make any there's no joke about it so <laughs> maybe um, maybe i'm just i'm being optimistic for him yeah. yeah uh but as you mentioned that's a that's a terrible idea yeah i mean it could be potentially devastating in terms of the mm-hmm. return that you would get and the risk you would take because if you bought only 50 stocks from the entire world, I would argue that in even, even within one country, you would want to own more than substantially more than 50 stocks to truly participate in the capital market return of that country. To try to get it in, on a global basis would be, you know, I, it, it would be impossible, statistically impossible to optimize a portfolio of 50 to capture the world returns, in my view from all the research I've seen on, on how many stocks it takes to track even one particular index, like the S&P 500 or our market, um, if you were trying to track something bigger, maybe like the Wilshire 5000 index, you could have a smaller number than 5000 to get very close to those returns, but 50 would probably um, be pushing it on on that much less doing it around the entire world. It just seems like it wouldn't be a great idea at all. Yeah, we, we wouldn't recommend picking 50 stocks to, to represent even one segment of the market, much less your entire portfolio. So um, kind of we can, I think, set that idea aside for now. Particularly, he's saying do it randomly. I mean, yeah. there are professional money managers out there who spend an inordinate amount of time being getting educated and also subscribing and getting their hands on the best research in the world to try to pick what they would think are the best 50 ideas. Uh, And they struggle to be able to add any return value by doing that, by picking out of the S&P 500, for example, and saying, hey, we're going to do the, pick our 50 favorite ideas. And most managers fail to do that. Randomly picking stocks, um, you may do better than most professional managers, but it's probably still not a great idea. Um, because of the nature of the lack of diversification that you're you're subjecting yourself to, just I wouldn't do it. I would really want to map out and own a piece of um, every country, investable country in the world that made sense to invest in, and I would want a large enough sample, which would probably require at least fifty from each of those countries um, or a particular market say it's emerging markets, they're going to have at least 50 to cover those markets. And then just the, the trading costs on that alone would be pretty extreme. Uh, if you're looking at, say, $8 for every single stock you buy, yeah. um, you'd certainly be much better off buying one fund that did all that for you and rebalanced and all Particularly, that. Yeah, how would you rebalance those? You know, Even if there was no commission, you're dealing with the tax implications of Trading in and out of those fifty, it just it wouldn't be a good idea. So I, I would X that one off the list. 
Okay, so the other method suggested was investing in low-cost funds tracking five major indexes, the S&P 500, London's FTSE 100 index, which is 100 large-cap stocks in the United Kingdom, uh, Europe's Eurostoxx 50, uh, which would be 50 stocks from the, I'm assuming, mainland Europe, uh, developed countries, so mostly Western Europe, probably looking at a lot of France, Germany, Switzerland, so on and so forth, uh, Japan's Nikkei 225, and the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, and weighting those equally. Um, I don't think that approach makes a whole lot of sense either. First off, you're, um, you're missing some, some major countries that uh, we would suggest that you uh, invest in. For example, in terms of developed markets, you, you're not investing in, say, Canada or Australia or Hong Kong or Singapore or various other developed countries that are outside of Europe. Um, and I'm not really sure the reasoning behind that. And also, uh, equal weighting, well, they make it sound like, well, this is the, this is the know-nothing approach. I don't know anything about these markets. Uh, I don't want to make a bet on them. But, in fact, by using those weightings, they are making a, a significant bet. So you're saying, for example... I want 20% of my portfolio to be represented by Japan. Uh, Japan is much, much less than 20% of the the world in terms of you're, you're talking gross domestic product, you're talking uh, market capitalization, any measure. It's, it's much smaller than 20% of the world. Mm-hmm. So in effect, you are massively overweighting Japan. In um, if we're using market capitalization, which is the metric we tend to use in our, our weightings, you're uh, overweighting the emerging markets. You're overweighting uh, Europe and the UK, and you're underweighting the United States. So I don't know how they arrived at those weights, um, but it's certainly not a, a know-nothing approach. It's, it's either explicitly or implicitly making massive bets on, on certain areas of the world, and that's not something that we would necessarily recommend unless it's unless it is it's your intention to do that and in terms of overweighting a particular country uh the research has shown that that's over time that's not a particularly effective strategy so the our approach at empirical um we we like to use the global market capitalization weightings as a baseline so that our feeling is that um, an allocation that is in line with world market caps is a neutral bet on each location of the world. So, for example, the United States is around forty percent, maybe a little more, maybe forty-five percent of the world. So, the baseline weighting in our model would be forty-five percent. And so on for developed countries. There you go. You know, say 30-some percent. Uh, emerging markets are maybe 11 or 12 percent. And we, we think that's a, a, an appropriate baseline. And then if you have maybe particular beliefs, for example, you think that emerging markets uh, over the long term um, are a good, a good bet because they 
they have outperformed given the the level of of risk in investing in them, uh, which is something that that we that we've seen in the data and we apply to our our models. Then maybe you you tilt from that particular baseline, but this the the strategy of just picking things and dividing them into fifths because it's convenient. It, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. It's not something. It's not something we'd recommend for your uh, retirement. It seems, I guess, kind of arbitrary. There's no, there's no evidence behind that. Uh, and it's clearly not patriotic either, right, Ken? Exactly. So what you're saying, Eric, is um, start with a global weighting and then make adjustments to that um, that would add return or yeah. enhance return or minimize risk. Based, based on on empirical data. Right. You know, if, if the research says that this, this particular strategy uh, adds return, you know, the, the academic research, the empirical research, all that, then that, that might be a good strategy. But I, I, I don't think weighting uh, asset classes, weighting countries, um, just by evenly dividing a portfolio, um, I haven't seen anything, any research that says that that's a winning strategy. I think the point that you know they're making in here is that if absent any other sophisticated model of how you're building the portfolio and how you're going to rebalance it, you know, hey, I Jesus get complicated. I got two I got 4.6% of this and then um, you know, 18.6% of something else and now I'm having to rebalance all that. It's very simple if you equally weighted things to know how to how to rebalance them back to the target, and um, but with a little spreadsheet work, it's not too difficult to set up a model. Mm-hmm. And um, any advisor worth their salt would be able to take the correlations of the two the asset classes, but also map out a way of um, aligning these different asset classes to get you to a target return for a specific amount of risk that you're taking along some kind of efficient frontier line. The idea being that, hey, I want to mac- I want, again, I want to maximize my return for a given amount of risk. I don't believe that u- using historical returns and devi- standard deviations and correlations and optimizing gives you a perfect portfolio. It's, it's, it's not, uh, from the research I've read, uh, not the greatest way to, to do it, using an optimizer. But having a, a basis of, of saying, hey, I'm not just going to own particularly individual countries in some equal weighting. I would rather own... A portfolio that does weight, capitalization weight, and that's a big argument about whether or not cap-weighted indexes are as good as other types. But um, I think we're going to have to take a quick break, Eric. Let's do that, and then we'll uh, come back and wrap this up in our last segment of the show. We'll be right back after this break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P. 
I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. This is the last segment of our show. And uh, I think we've pretty much wrapped up the all-weather portfolio uh, article, just a few takeaways, that it is important to globally diversify. Um, and it's good to have, as far as that goes, it's good to have a simple strategy. Uh, we would just recommend maybe don't, don't uh, give up returns just for the sake of simplicity. I think, Eric, I would, not to sound self-serving here, but the scenario where I would engage in advisors, it gets more complicated. There are things you can do to build on this base of knowledge. And the key elements here is if you're not globally diversifying or including things like emerging markets or developed international countries, you're potentially leaving return on the table or taking on more risk than you should. And you'll potentially go through extended periods of underperformance. You also have outperformance. Certainly owning an S&P 500 portfolio during the 90s did much better than a lot of globally diversified portfolios you could structure, but the objective you most investors should be looking for is to have a smoother ride, a reasonable rate of return um, over the over as many periods as possible. You know, if I was targeting 10% a year, I'd like to get as close to that 10% a year as possible in each particular year rather than have an extended period where I get negative five percent, an extended period where I get I do get above average returns. I mean, like that period, but if the cost of getting that is I have to go through periods of underperforming substantially, I'd much rather have something that has a tighter band of return ranges around my target return. And most advisors should be doing a lot of additional planning and work on the investment side to bring value. Uh, most of that work should not be predicting which stock will be the best performing stock or what IPO to invest in next. There are a lot of other investment elements that have been proven to add return. 
than that. And on that note, well, I have time for this uh, little article here that you handed me. Looks like John Wagner in the USA Today. If you subject that your returns are worse than the ones you see posted, if you suspect that the returns, are, your returns are worse than the ones you see posted by your mutual funds, you're probably right. I don't think most people suspect that, but I think we should take a closer look at that. Um, and it's probably your fault. And in the article, he goes on to say, the average investor's return has lagged the average fund's return by 2.49% percentage points per year, according to Morningstar, the mutual fund company. Uh, the typical investor gained 4.8% a year, the 10 years ending this past December 13th, uh, 2013, versus 7.3% for the typical fund. So what they're saying there is if you took all the mutual funds in the Morningstar database and you looked at what their returns, their reported returns are for the last 10 years, is about 7.3% for all of those funds. But if you looked at what the actual investors inside those funds got, when you accounted for things like when they moved in and out of those funds, the dollar-weighted returns, they only re- received a 4.8% rate of return for that 10-year period. So they left a pretty substantial amount of return on the table. And so we this is updated through 2013. We've had other studies that we've used in our various presentations for 20-year periods. Not that we're up to this. It's a similar it's similar results. The average, the investors who are putting their money in the funds um, are getting lower returns than if they had just evenly, if we were going to equally weight portfolios, right? If we took all the funds and said, what, what is the average return? Well, if you owned an equal weighting in every fund in the database, you would have gotten that 7.3%. But because people have the ability to move money in and out of funds, they have the ability or the opportunity to do, do better or worse and consistently, these studies have shown that the average investor is doing worse. And stock funds had the smallest gap. It was 1.6% a year. So if you just took out of that database and said, well, what are investors who are buying the stock funds um, and, and isolated it to just the stock funds, they still underperformed by 1.6%, but it was less than all of the funds. And part of the reason you'd explain that is bad timing because investors were pulling money out. Uh, for example, they yanked $375 billion out of stock funds between 2008 and 2013, um, and they put $989 billion into bond funds during that same period of time. So at a time where the stock market was doing very well and recovering, investors continued to draw money out of stock funds and put them into bond funds. Well, bond funds haven't done that well. They're a very critical part of, of, a, of a portfolio. But you certainly wouldn't want to be in bonds at a time when stocks are doing great. And then after stocks have gone down and bonds are doing, uh, or as stocks are going about to go down and bonds are about to do great, do the reverse. But that's what often happens because we have a tendency, the simplest way that we shortcut as investors is to say, well, geez, I lost money in this area of my portfolio or it's not doing well. That's my measure. It's not doing well since my last report. I think I'll get rid of that and I'll put money in the area of my portfolio that has done well. And that has been proven time and time and empirically. It's a bad way to invest. 
the advisor effect, and this is interesting, Eric. You know, with last, we got a little more time. Uh, it says that not just investors move willy nilly in and out of stock from bond funds; they paid advisors to help them do that in a lot of cases. Um, and money can go through the advisors. Well, now you've got you paying an advisor to do this. The advisor effect is most evident in the flows of money in and out of alternative funds. Funds that borrow strategies from the world of hedge funds to reduce risk. Unfortunately, they haven't lived up to their promise and performance has been poor. To make matters worse, investors have moved in and out of them at the wrong time. Typical investor lost 1.15% a year in alternative funds, while the average total return for alternative funds was just positive 0.96. So for the period of time uh, that we're talking about, you, put, you hired an advisor. This is something I was saying back during the crisis um, where all these advisors are saying, hey, I'm, I'm losing customers because I can't, I can't clearly communicate why we should stick to a diversified strategy that works over, to, over their entire time horizon. It's much easier, I think, for us as individuals, but also as advisors, to go, well, the thing we need to be doing is finding the solution to yesterday's problem. And that solution at that time that I was seeing overwhelmingly was putting people in either insurance products that guarantee them very little inflation-adjusted return or alternative investments you know, that guarantee that, hey, this won't behave like stocks and bonds, which means to me... When stocks do turn around and are doing really well, you won't be. But on the bright side, if you had these during the last crisis, it would have done pretty well. And not only did they underperform the group like they did in the mutual fund area, the group itself did 0.96% uh, over a period of time, right, where the market did a, a, a balanced portfolio of simply stocks and bonds did substantially better. And I, I think this is a—it's it's such an important point to to drill home—is that this is not people sitting at home day trading who have no idea what they're doing. These are advisors; these are professional advisors who are chasing returns, uh, just like everyone knows you shouldn't. I mean, so that's that's kind of insult to injury. You're you're paying someone to to make mistakes, to make to make the the mistakes that. Uh, I, I think it's generally agreed upon that people shouldn't make. We know these are problems. We know this exists, and yet these professionals, the smart money, you know, in quotes, is are making these same behavioral mistakes. I don't know. That's frustrating, I think. Very frustrating. In the other article, in the last few seconds we have here, um, are you ready for a long retirement? Well, basically the actuarial tables have been adjusted and people, the longevity of the average retiree, at least one member of the couple, uh, is something in the age category of 94. It means you have, a, if you're not going back to work, you have a lot less room for these kind of mistakes. Maybe we'll go over this article a little more next week. But uh, I think that's about all the time we have, if I'm not mistaken. If you want to give us a call throughout the week, again, it's 1-800-923-4307. Eric and, and or I would be happy to go over your portfolio, no obligation, no high pressure stuff. We just would want to share what we can do or what you've got going and try to help. You can shoot me an email, ksmith at empirical.net directly. Have a great week and thanks for tuning in.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 